Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Global Geek News Podcast. This is episode number 54, and as always, I am your host, Jeremy Bray, alongside my cat once again this week. Uh, not real sure where Wesley is. I haven't really talked to him. I saw a tweet from him this morning, apparently yesterday, which is Monday night, which is our normal recording night. Apparently, he found out that his wife has started divorce papers, so... I'm guessing we probably won't see him this week for sure, and I would, and I don't know about next week or the coming weeks. He said he was going to be offline for a while, so when I hear from him, I'll uh, guess I'll pass that along to you guys and kind of keep you guys in the loop as to what's happening with the show and whatnot. But either way, I still have our full complement of stories this week. I got some information to share about my trip to Microsoft last week. I've got all kinds of other stuff. Some um, those of you that are still waiting for our new intro, uh, an opportunity has come up that would take what I have so far, which is better than what we have now, but still not wonderful, and turning it into something awesome. So I'm I'm gonna take that opportunity. So it might be another week or two weeks or something like that before we get the new intro up and running, but. It's coming, and it should be good. Um, for those of you that are wondering what's going on on the blog, I haven't had a chance to post much of anything on the blog, at least not in the last week. Uh, of course, as I'm sure at least those of you who follow me on Twitter, and I think I even mentioned on the last show, that I, as part of my Microsoft Student Insider deal that I'm a part of, I spent, was it, well, I guess I flew out on Wednesday and got back on Saturday as to where I spent... Thursday and Friday, touring around the Microsoft campus, meeting with various product groups about you name it, anything and everything, anything from uh, a little bit of Windows 7, some Surface, um, XNA, even got to spend Friday night with the 1 versus 100 team, and I think, and I even ended up getting to go live on the air and ask one of the trivia questions, which was pretty cool, and that was just a awesome experience in and of itself, but hopefully I'm going to get a chance in the next day or two or three or just the rest of this week now that I kind of, now that things kind of seem to be settled down since I didn't end up having jury duty today, that I could actually get a few things done, um, hopefully I'll get a chance to blog about all of my experiences up there, which, other than dinner the first night, I would say it was probably one of the best experiences of my life. Dinner, on the other hand, I could have lived without. I'm not a big fan of real slow service or less inattentive service or very loud atmospheres where I can't hear the person sitting next to me, rather less when my food is undercooked, but which I regretted the next morning. But anyway, I'll talk about more than that on the blog at globalgeeknews.com slash blog and at some point I'll, I've got some video I didn't take a whole lot of video from the um, trip unfortunately but I did get some good video from the Surface team kind of talked about the Surface and just showing off what it can do kind of a little bit of where it's going and stuff like that so that that's actually a pretty interesting video. I think it's 20-some minutes or something like that, but I'll have to 
chop it down to a couple of different pieces so it'll fit on YouTube or whatever, but I'll try and get that up in the next week or so. Um, don't forget, you can follow along with all the stories at globalgeeknews.com. That's where you can also find a number of other links, including to the blog and to the Global Geek News Facebook fan page. For those of you who aren't a fan of Global Geek News on Facebook yet, I recommend becoming one. I, I've kind of slacked off a little bit lately, but normally I, whenever a show's up, I post it on there. Whenever a new blog is up, I post it on there. If anything else is major is going on, I post it on there. As well as the Global Geek News Twitter, Twitter which is at Global Geek News. And I'll plug the other Twitters and everything else a little bit later in the show. But go ahead and jump right into the stories. One of the things I didn't actually get into the stories this week was essentially the big news of this past week, that being the iPad announcement, which not a big fan of the name. I guess it's okay. I suppose it's probably better than the iSlate or an iTablet or whatever, but iPad just seems to be a little bit underwhelming to me. I kind of, and it kind of fits in with the whole iPad, um, iPod, iPhone kind of thing, but I don't know, I'm not a big fan of it, but basically for those of you that haven't got a chance to see it, and I haven't seen it in person or had a chance to play around with it since when it was announced, I was sitting in the Denver airport getting ready to jump on my flight to Seattle, but from what I've seen of it, and what I've heard and taught and from hearing from people that have played with it is basically all it is is an oversized iPod. Nothing really new in terms of functionality. I mean, there's like the bookstore or whatever, which I would think you can pretty much easily do on an iPod, considering there's a Kindle store and stuff, or a Kindle app on the iPod. So basically, it's just an oversized Kindle with maybe a easier to use keyboard, and or on-screen keyboard, I should say, but nothing that would make me really want to buy it. I mean, I've already got an iPod Touch, so it's, and as much as I love my iPod Touch and the experience on it, despite the fact that I'm having some podcast syncing issues on it, I don't see myself needing something in a 10-inch screen that does the exact same thing. I don't know from it. From what I've seen of it, it does some it it nicely formats some things. Like if you're gonna read like a newspaper on it and stuff, that seems to be done right. But one of the big things on it that there seems to be a big war over, which we'll get to, I believe it's towards the I believe it's the second to last story, is the whole um, Apple Adobe Flash war war of words, I should say. Um, but I'll get to that a little bit more when we get to that story. But to me, I, I think it's just kind of an overpriced thing. I, I, I mean, it's quite a bit more than a Kindle. Even a Kindle DX, it's even more than that. And, for, and considering the fact that you don't get that much more out of it, or at least... I mean, if you got a Kindle and an iPod Touch like I do, you basically have an iPad. I mean, there's no real need to get an iPad if you have that combination, or even something close to that combination. So I, I really don't see why I should get it, and it's nothing like 
the rumors said, I mean, yeah, there were some a lot of rumors that said, oh, it's just going to be an oversized iPod Touch, basically, which is what it is. But there was nothing to the rumors that it was going to be on Verizon. There was There's no gesture controls. There's no camera of any kind. Uh, I don't believe there's any Bluetooth. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of this stuff that people were wanting that didn't come in it, which presumably I would guess that it's going to be left for uh, the second generation of the device, but it ended up causing a bunch, a huge amount of disappointment from what I've heard on various podcasts, the blogosphere, you name it. And even if you look at their stock price, I mean, whenever I, whenever there's an Apple event, I always pay close attention to the stock price. Usually everybody's buying on the rumors and selling on the news. As to where usually the day an announcement happens, as soon as the announcement starts, you'll see Apple start, stocks start to drop. Usually by the end of the day, it's down somewhere between 5 and 7%. Now, the day of the announcement, Apple stock was actually up a fair bit. But after the day was over and everybody come came to their senses and realized, hey, this is just an oversized Apple or an oversized iPod Touch, the stock has plunged, and not just a little bit. Between the day of the announcement and as of closing today, it's dropped 15 percent. So, I mean, that's a big drop. I mean, so it's clear that not only is this um, a bit of a disappointment, but it, it's a disappointment to the effect that it's having a much larger drop in their stock price than normal product announcements does. And with normal product announcements, yeah, it'll drop the first day, but then it'll start to come back up. This is nothing like that. It's dropped and it's basically stayed down. It's a couple of days ago it hit, I believe it's like 192, and I think it's back up to 196 now. But still, I mean, that's still fit down 15%, and it's very slowly maybe appearing to start to rise a little bit, but nothing back up to the 210 that it was the day of the announcement. So Apple's got themselves some real issues. Luckily, they've got themselves a little bit of time before they come out with it, but I think at this point, I'm sure the design is pretty much finalized, so it's not like they could just throw in a camera or something at the last minute and say, oh, hey, it's actually better than you thought it was. Let our price, our stock price go up. But anyway, speaking of mobile devices, we'll go ahead and get right in, into our first story, which is apparently phone and text bans on drivers is being shown ineffective. Apparently, the HDLI, which I'm not real sure who that is, but um, apparently they connect. They conducted a study in New York, Washington, D.C., Connecticut, and California, all states that have um, bans on driving while talking on the phone, texting, stuff like that. And despite the laws, monthly fluctuations in crash rates didn't change after the bans were enacted. So even though these devices were banned and a lot of people stopped using them while they were driving it hasn't done anything to the number of crashes that have occurred I mean, for a long time now everybody's saying oh talking on a cell phone or whatever is so distracting it leads to X percentage of all crashes um, apparently that's not the case and yeah it may have it, it will increase your risk of getting in an accident 
but even if you don't have it, it doesn't make you any safer of a driver. And there's dozens of other things that you could get distracted by even if you don't have a phone that you're fiddling with at the time. I know around here, we it seems like the biggest problem around here is not people on their phones, it's people having a conversation with somebody else in the vehicle with them. Especially if there's little kids usually having a fit in the back seat. Then you, then these people are usually all over the roads and driving just horribly and I don't know how many times I've nearly been hit by people that are distracted just by people that are in the car, not by cell phones or anything else. Then, of course, you get the people that are eating while they're driving, putting on their makeup while they're driving, reading the newspaper while they're driving, fiddling with the radio while they're driving, which I'm guilty of. But the the fact that they've blamed everything on cell phones is just showing that it's not true. I mean, if it was... If the amount of collisions that's being blamed on... Uh, mobile devices is what they said it was, then the number of crashes should have gone down by that much a percent, or at least close to it, where, now, where what it's showing is that it hasn't even deviated path, past the um, monthly variance. So, I don't know, I, I'm kind of curious to see what if there if there's going to be any response like from the states or whatever that have enacted these bans or if there's going to be maybe a um a slowing in the movement in the states that are working on passing them as far as actually trying to get legislation going i know around here where we now finally have a ban against texting while driving around here not that it stops anybody and and we can't talk on the phones if you're like 18 and younger or whatever, not that it stops anybody. And, I mean, when we have the texting while driving ban around here, I still haven't heard of a single person being ticketed for that. Last I heard, even in the newspapers, they said when they talked to the law enforcement agencies, there's not, there hasn't been a person ticketed for it because they can't... It's very hard to see if someone is actually texting or if they're dialing a phone number or what, and it's something that's apparently very hard to prove, so they don't even bother with it. And it's it's one of those bad laws that it's just kind of one of those things that's kind of legislating common sense, but there's no real teeth behind it, I should say. But anyway, speaking of things that are just kind of a little surprising, yet a little off, apparently 70% of employers have rejected applicants over online info. You know, I've... I don't know how many different shows and stuff and in the blog and whatever. I don't know how many times I've said always be careful of what it is you're putting up online. Don't be putting up drunk party photos on your Facebook or on your Flickr or twit picking them or whatever because this stuff will come back to haunt you. And and this is... uh, Let's see. I'm trying to see where this uh, came from. Uh, I'm trying to figure out... I can't remember who did this survey or study or whatever. I guess it's part of the 4th Annual Data Privacy Day, which is kind of a Microsoft-sponsored non-holiday meant to raise awareness about um, privacy and uh, major online issues like that. But 
anyway, um, when you put all this stuff up online, even if you mark it as private, people can still get in there and look at it. And just one of the, if you think about it, um, if you if you're wanting to show yourself as a professional to somebody who you're wanting a job with, you want to have the most impressive um, look possible, whether it's how you're dressed at the interview, or if they Google you, you want to have something that's impressive. I mean, whether it's a blog on about whatever topic that maybe you're trying to get a job with that shows you're knowledgeable about the subject or whatever, you don't want anything that's going to hurt you in that job search or whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, whether it's getting a job or whatever. But if you're putting a bunch of photos that you, that portrays you as a drunk party goer or whatever, then that's going to um, take in they're going to take that into account as to how they're going to judge whether or not you get the job. And this is just a survey or study or whatever that's saying that 70% of employers now are rejecting people over their online information. So there's approximately 70% of employers now that are saying, hey, if you interview with us, we're going to Google you and we're going to find out the kind of stuff that we don't talk about in in an interview to find out if you're a good fit for our company. So if you're looking to work at some kind of a party planning place, maybe you can have some party photos. But otherwise, I'd say um, try and keep your photos very family-friendly, family would, would probably be the best way to put it, or new boss-friendly, or something like that. But just want to be careful, and even if you put your stuff as private or whatever, it's not necessarily private. And For example, there's been numerous occasions when if I have a mutual friend with somebody, but I'm not a friend of the person whose photos I want to view and their photos are on private, all my mutual friend has to do is go in, open up the photos, uh, I believe it's like a right-click and view the photo in Firefox or whatever, and just copy the URL for that exact photo, and even though it's set as private, I can still see that photo. Just because you set your photos as private doesn't mean much of anything. And that stuff's fairly easy to get around. So, if, if it, as a general rule, if you're setting it to private, you probably shouldn't have it up there in the first place. But, anyway, speaking of things you probably shouldn't be doing online, like piracy, not that I should be one to talk, but apparently the three strikes law could be coming to the United States via the back door. Apparently, um, there's the MPAA and RIAA and stuff. I guess they're already in discussions with presumably various senators and congressmen and stuff like that to get a three strikes legislation in into the U.S. through backroom deals, and prob- and I would assume they're going to hide it in some big, gigantic piece of legislation that no one would ever read in the first place. So, if I ever, I, I don't know what the best way to combat this is, other than maybe 
just keeping an eye on the kind of legislation that's bring, being brought in, and if when this stuff kind of comes up to talk to your senators about it, I mean, this, basically they're kind of having to resort to backroom deals because even ACTA, they're, what they're trying to push through in secret is a treaty between several countries, which basically all that is, or the main part about that, is that it, that's the, a global three strikes law. Seem, since that seems to be falling apart, this is kind of the next logical option for them is to try and do these backroom deals to pass some sort of a three strikes law. So, I mean, there's more to it in this story, which you can check out at globalgeeknews.com. It's, the link is there in the show notes. But that's basically what's going on. I mean, there's been an, a couple of countries that have already passed the three strikes law, and so far I don't think I've heard of anybody actually getting disconnected from it, but I know it's coming, and I know it's coming here, too. Sorry about that. Had to let the cat out. Apparently the cat was tired of sleeping on my printer and decided to go elsewhere. I didn't think the show was that boring tonight, but maybe it is. Anyway, speaking of the RIAA, and I realize that we're probably going through this show a little bit faster than usual, but that's just because I'm solo and I didn't get as many shows, or as many stories as I like to get when I go solo. But anyway, speaking of the RIAA, apparently they have decided to appeal the Jamie Thomas ruling. I guess after last, I guess, I think, I'm sure it was last week's show that we talked about how they dropped the fine from $1.92 million to $54,000. Well, apparently, Jamie Thomas is saying, nope, still not going to pay it. So the RIAA is going to say, okay, so we're going to appeal it again and see if they can get something maybe a little bit better than the $54,000 to try and send a message like they did with the first one. Not that she'd ever probably be able to pay anything above that. I know she's, there was no way she could pay the $1.92 million fine. But who knows what... I'm kind of curious to see what happens now. I'm kind of... I'm actually kind of wondering how many different appeals they can go through for this thing. I mean, they've had, what is it, two or three trials already and a couple of appeals and everything else. And I guess now the whole... Jammy Thomas team is working on trying to get the whole thing thrown out for um, by challenging the constitutionality of the fine, which I hope it works. I don't, I don't know. It, I still think the fifty-four thousand dollars is a bit much, but I don't know. I, I'm just not a big fan of how the law is worded as far as the amount of damages that you can get for it. As far as I'm concerned, you up you download 20 songs, you should pay 20 bucks for it if you get caught. That's what it'll cost you on iTunes, so that's what it should cost you then. It shouldn't cost you $54,000 for 24 songs or whatever it was that she downloaded. But, rather less, $1.92 but that's just kind of how I see it. But ho- hopefully we'll get a little bit more from that here real soon. Um, I believe we sh- there should be more news coming from the oh, the Joel Tannenbaum case here fairly soon, too, because I believe they're challenging the constitutionality of their fine as well. So hopefully if we can... Hopefully we'll get something solid on these cases soon to 
make for precedent for other possible cases. Not that we much need it anymore since the RAAA has supposedly stopped suing people, which isn't really all that true, but it, they have cut back. And the, But, I don't know, hopefully that'll turn out for the best. I'm rooting for Jamie Thomas in this one. Then again, I can't stand the RAAA. But speaking of which, who are, who are you guys watched the Grammys on Sunday? I, wa- I didn't watch very much of it. I watched a little bit. I watched just enough to see... I don't know if it was like the head of the Grammy Commission or whatever, or the RIAA or whatever, come up on stage and give his big anti-piracy speech and how there's all these little tiny artists that are struggling to survive because we're pirating the music of the big artists. It made no sense. It's like they were saying... Well, there's these some artists that made it big and they're doing okay, but it's the thousands of little artists that you're hurting, and just some big retarded thing of trying to get you to pay for the music you download or whatever. It's like, uh, okay, I don't mind paying for the music that I download if it went to the band, but since it goes to the pockets of the RIAA, there I'm gonna then I'm just gonna pirate the music and then just go to the concert, and the band can get my money that way. That's where most bands make their money, is in the concerts, although I'm not sure how much that's still the case now that they're starting to get 360 deals with most of the major artists, but I I think even then it's still kind of their biggest money maker, I believe. But anyway, if you haven't seen that, I'm guessing that's probably a... that clip's probably up on YouTube or somewhere by now, or I'm sure you can find a torrented version of the Grammys floating around on the Pirate Bay or something. But some something you should check out, because it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. But speaking of BitTorrent and stuff like that, Microsoft is suing a prominent BitTorrent tracker for $43 million. Um, there's apparently... They've... Uh, I'm trying to find the name of the torrent. I guess this is in conjunction with the, Lithua- the Lithuanian anti-piracy outfit... Lanva, which I'm guessing is basically like the Lithuanian version of, um, well, I guess since this is the software side, since this is Microsoft, I'm trying to, oh, what is the name of the organization that fights the piracy for software? Can't think of it. Anyway, basically kind of like a Lithuanian version of the RIAA or MPAA or whatever the software version is that I can't think of the name of. But apparently Microsoft has teamed up with them, basically, to go after um, apparently um, I don't even know if I want to try and say the torrent tracker's name Linko Monages? I guess that's what is Linko Monija? I guess that's how it's pronounced. Apparently, its operator Kestis Ermanis, and they're and they're basically taking him to court for the fact that Office 2003 and 2007 was avail- was available for download via BitTorrent on their torrent tracker, which apparently it's one of those things that's just not making a whole lot of sense. I mean, I. Yeah, I kind of understand why Microsoft's doing it, but according to um, the owner of the, this alleged operator, Kestis, who supposedly hasn't even 
been operating it since as of like December 2009. So basically it hasn't been operating it for the past two months or whatever that they've um, turned it over to somebody else, which no one seems to know who. But apparently, according to him, Microsoft said that had sent him like a notice, uh, like some kind of a takedown notice or maybe something like that, but didn't provide links to what they wanted taken down. So they never took anything down because they weren't really told what to take down. They were just sent like maybe it's like some generic takedown notices or whatever. And so now my since they never heard back from Microsoft, now it's just all of a sudden Microsoft suing them for $43 million and they were never really given real good instructions on what to take down in the first place. So it's kind of one of those crazy deals and he's not real sure why he's being sued since he's no longer part of the site and all kinds of stuff. But apparently this site's kind of been under attack anyway because apparently since November last year 106 users of the site had been reported to the police and there's one of them so far that's going to trial as of next month. So I'm guessing this is just kind of the first of legal nightmares for this site, but I've got a feeling that considering the fact that Microsoft never really seemed to follow up, I guess is the best way to put it, I'm going to say their case is in a little bit of jeopardy, and I really don't think they're going to be able to get $43 million in damages from this torrent site. And if the Pirate Bay can't even um, show that they make any money that they could pay their fines of, what is it, a million dollars, a little less than a million dollars a piece, something like that. I really don't think this smaller torrent site, which is still Lithuania's largest torrent site, but still, I don't think they're going to be able to pay a $43 million fine or whatever, if that, or you know, fine and damages if that's what happens. But speaking of Microsoft and the lawsuits... Apparently, Microsoft is being sued over the Xbox Live points. Um, This is kind of one of those things we talked a little bit about last week as far as the Microsoft points have never really made a whole lot of sense. And basically, for $10, you'll get 1,200 Microsoft points, which that that conversion just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me or most anybody else. And you'd generally think maybe 100 points equals a dollar. Nope, not the case. But anyway, apparently the whole issue here is that you spend 10 bucks or whatever and get 1,200 Microsoft points. Then you buy something for 1,000 Xbox or Xbox Live points or Microsoft points or whatever you want to call them since they do transfer over to the Zune as well. You basically end up with these little bits here and there of Microsoft points that you essentially never use. So, basically, that's kind of like profit for Microsoft. I mean, yeah, they're sitting in your account, and you could use them at some point, but eventually you get these small little absurd amounts, like 40 Xbox Live points or something like that. And I've been bitten by this as well, where you just have this sitting there, and there's nothing you can buy with it. Well, finally, there's apparently a class action lawsuit that was filed by Samuel Lassoff, a Philadelphia-based attorney who's um, 
claiming that Microsoft engages in a scheme to unjustly enrich itself through their fraudulent handling of his Xbox Live account and claims that hundreds of Xbox Live members aren't getting what they're paid for. I think it's a little bit more than hundreds, but if that's what you want to go with, then okay, we'll go with that. Um, apparently they're saying that Microsoft breached its contract by collecting revenue for digital for digital goods and services that were not provided. Basically, from what I gather from that is that when you have these leftover points you weren't that you can't do anything with, you essentially weren't provided anything from those points that you bought. Because you can't do anything with it, you can't get your cash back or anything. So essentially it just sits there and it becomes Microsoft's money and there's not a whole lot of anything you can do about it unless you continually buy enough points and spend enough points that eventually you break even. But that's kind of a one of those crazy little math games that nobody wants to do. So I'm kind of curious to see just how this is going to progress in court and stuff. And I'm kind of curious to see if this pushes Microsoft a little bit closer to the moving away from the Microsoft points and back to actual money values like we talked about on last week's show, which you can find at globalgeeknews.com, episode 53. But I'm kind of curious to see just how this is going to progress and how this is going to affect the whole Microsoft points scheme. So if anybody happens to follow this a little bit more closely or know anything more about it, by all means, pass that along. I'm going to do my best to keep tabs on it and report back as things change, but if once in a while I do have a tendency of missing stuff, so feel free to pass it along. But speaking of lawsuits, if P, one of my least favorite com- favorite uh, anti-piracy areas, companies, I mean, has apparently lost its deep, deep linking case against the Chinese search engine Baidu. Baidu being China's largest search engine, which by far blows away Google and whatnot in terms of the search engine market share in China. But apparently, they back in 2008, Baidu was sued for around $9 million by Sony, BMG, Universal Music, and Warner Music for providing so-called deep links to copyrighted music tracks. For those don't know what, that don't know what deep links are, it's essentially... When a user can look up a particular file, say, um, oh, let's say they'll look up Hanson's mbop.mp3 on the search engine. Well, that provides a direct link to the file rather than to a website where you can then click on the file. Instead, it just provides the direct link to the file to download the music. Well, if P's case was basically they're linking to the files, they can't do that. That's copyrighted music. Well, Baidu doesn't do anything about it. I mean, Baidu is essentially a, a Google. It's a search engine. I mean, basically everything's done by an algorithm as far as what's in what's in there, how the search engine, how the rankings are, and stuff like that. It has no way of saying okay, this was uploaded by a legitimate source, or this is a piece of pirated material. There's nothing that it can do about that, and that's kind of the way the courts found, was that 
there's nothing Baidu isn't done by a person. It's not where they're specifically linking to a file that's linking straight to the MP3 file or whatever for download. It's just a, an algorithm that pulls up results based on whatever search criteria or whatever and orders them appropriately and that's just kind of the way it works. So the whole case got thrown out because they can't be held liable for something like that when it's something that an algorithm picks up and rather than a human. So I'm kind of curious to see if this happens to have any effect on anything else around the world. I know there have been various deep linking cases uh, like against Yahoo China and stuff in the past. So I'm kind of curious to see if how this affects any other deep linking cases that are going on whether they're in China or not. And, ah, excuse me. Apparently that meatball sandwich and me that I had for dinner wasn't really agreeing, which I'm guessing that's because they put mayonnaise on it, which why you would put mayonnaise on a meatball sandwich, I really don't know. But anyway, I'm kind of curious to see where this goes from here and just kind of how it affects how other companies see deep linking and stuff like that. But, Speaking of strange things that... Uh, okay, that was a bad transition. Anyway, apparently CompTIA has backed down, which, for those of you who haven't heard, apparently last week they decided to... Which, for those of you that don't know, actually, let me back up a little bit. CompTIA is basically the um, company that provides certifications for A+, Network Plus, Security Plus, stuff like that. Well, apparently, last week, for about an hour or so, they decided, oh, well, your um, certifications that we said were good for life, they're not going to be good for life anymore. They're only going to be good for three years. Well, basically, this just plain pissed off pretty much every nerd and IT person in the country. And as to where there was such a huge backlash of people that are saying, wait, what? My certification that you said is good for life is only going to be good for three years now. I'm, and within an hour or so, they ended up saying, okay, we've changed our mind. Anything 2010 and before will remain good for life. But starting in 2011, you'll have to renew your um, certs because they'll, they'll expire every three years, and you'll have to basically pay an annual fee of $25 or $45 that apparently, which is, I'm guessing, the fee to renew the certification, I'm, and I'm not sure if you're going to have to take like the test again or whatever, but essentially this is basically just one big way for them to try and make money at for no reason. I this, I'm glad to see that basically they're grandfathering everybody in and saying okay, if you've got a certification that says it's good for life, it'll still be good for life. But it makes me kind of wonder how important these certifications really are anymore. I mean, when you get something like this that says it's good for life and then you just up and change it to say, oh hey, it's only good for three years, how, how much credit does that lend to the certificate, nevertheless the person who's issuing the certificate. I mean, I don't know, I, I've always 
kind of have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with certif- for with certifications. And on one hand, it's good to see if somebody is certified in something because you generally know that okay, they at least know most of their way around a particular technology. But that's not to say that somebody who doesn't have a certification doesn't know as much or more as somebody who does. So, personally, I've never been one to put a whole lot of stock in certifications just for that reason, and I've got a feeling that that's probably going to be the case with even more people after this. So, I'm guessing that we're going to see, since apparently 2010 will remain certified for life, I'm guessing you're going to see that for the people who actually care about this stuff, a big flood of people going after like A+, Network+, and Security+, certifications. But after that, I've got a feeling you're probably going to see them drop off a little bit, or at least become less relevant and less necessary in um, like job applications and stuff like that. Anyway, speaking of a little bit of war of words that seems to be um, coming to a boil, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the whole Apple-Adobe thing, um, well, apparently, as I'm, like I mentioned, there will be no Flash on the iPad. Well, this is just kind of the latest development in Steve Jobs' hatred for Flash or whatever, just because it's a little on the slow side, it's a resource hog, and he's blaming it for, he's calling Adobe lazy, and basically blaming it, blaming Flash for most of Mac crashes, which I can't speak for a Mac user, because I've never used a Mac. Well, actually, I probably did, like, when I was in grade school or something like that, I believe we had one at the grade school that I'd get to use every once in a while to play, like, Oregon Trail on or something like that, but as a Windows user, Flash seems to crash my browser. Basically, if my browser class fr- crashes, it's pretty much almost always because of Flash, because of something that screwed up or whatever. Even more so now that I've been using Flash 10.1, which is the beta, so that's kind of to be expected. Beta 2 is a whole lot better than Beta 1. It doesn't crash nearly as much, but it still crash- it crashes quite a bit. But, I don't know, usually I can completely understand where Steve Jobs is coming from here, and now that we have HTML5, which basically does video and stuff, like there's, like we said, what was it, last week or the week before, there's now a YouTube, uh, you can watch YouTube videos in HTML5, but with, with stuff like HTML5 and Silverlight out there, I really don't see the point in, he, in even having... Flash around anymore. I think Flash is becoming less and less relevant. So I don't. So I can understand why Apple wouldn't want to put its resources into allowing something like that on there when it's basically going to be. Um, well, I don't know if I want to necessarily necessarily say dead, but close to dead here in oh, excuse me, in the next maybe two to three years. So I'm. I'm kind of, for once in my life, I'm kind of on the side of Steve Jobs with this one. Anything that can lead to the death of Flash makes me a happy person. But of course, um, Adobe has to come back with their statement, and this is not 
this is more a case of, well, Apple shouldn't be blocking Flash. It blocks innovation. It's like, okay, there's other platforms out there, Silverlight, HTML5, that people can innovate on. Um, Flash isn't the only thing in the world. But, yeah, basically they're kind of rant a little bit about how it doesn't allow for innovation and all kinds of stuff and the fact that Apple is basically the gatekeeper that tells people what they want and what they don't want and stuff like that and basically they're saying that it's a closed platform which is kind of a well duh but I don't know I, I'm starting to think that Adobe has while they make a good point about innovation kind of has a little bit of a not much not much of a leg to stand on here just because as everything else has progressed Flash tent has pretty much remained the same piece of crap it always has been. I mean, yeah, they're starting to make a little bit of a forward movement now with the 10.1, just because they're it's no longer going to be as CPU intensive. They're moving a lot of the um, processing to the GPU, which is really nice. But even that, they're kind of late to the game on because Silverlight already has that, and Silverlight hasn't been around half as long as Flash has. So I think the whole lack of innovation thing is kind of, to an extent, Adobe's fault because they basically never really moved forward all that much in all the time that they've been around. Or at least they haven't really moved Flash forward in all that time. And they could have been way beyond where they are now and could have been a platform that people actually love instead of love to hate. So goodbye, Flash. I won't miss you. And hopefully this will be a quick death. But speaking of wars, um, another big story from the past week was this whole Amazon Macmillan ebook price demand thing. Apparently, basically from my understanding of what happened is that Macmillan, which is apparently a book publishing firm, wanted fifteen dollars or wanted to be able to charge $15 for their ebooks rather than the standard 9.99 that Amazon charges for ebooks which I'm really not sure exactly how that works it seems like for most books are 9.99 but there's some books that um like whenever I go and look for like a programming book or something like that they'll still be close to their retail price, maybe just a couple bucks cheaper, so I think I was I'm actually looking at a book for Windows Presentation Foundation and the list price on it is 34 bucks, the Kindle version I believe is like 31 bucks so, and it's still not that much difference, and I'm not sure what kind of a special agreement that they have to be able to charge that much compared to the 9.99 that Macmillan wasn't able to get or what, but Essentially, Macmillan wanted 15 bucks for their ebooks because one of the whole big things right now with publishers is that 9.99 isn't providing enough. They don't. They think that it kind of undervalues the books, basically, and so they kind of went to battle with Amazon and decided to. I'm not sure if Amazon pulled their Macmillan's books or if Macmillan pulled their book pulled their books off of Amazon. I think they pulled their books off of Amazon or told Amazon to pull their books until Amazon caved and said that, okay, you can have $15 ebooks or you can name your own price at whatever you want or something to that effect. And I, 
be honest, I'm kind of on Amazon's side here. I, I think they're kind of playing almost a little bit like an app, like Apple did with music in that there's this standard price. Yeah, it's a little low as to where you're not going to make as much money as you might normally make, but you're making money and consumers are going to buy more because it's cheaper. And that's kind of been part of the whole main argument here is that, okay, if you're going to charge more for your product, less people are going to be able to afford it, rather less want to afford it. And if they know you're trying to strong-arm Amazon when they've got hundreds of thousands of other books that they can read, why are they going to want it yours? Uh, I think this is one of those battles that's going to be interesting to watch, I, and I certainly hope that Amazon comes out on top, but I've got a f- feeling that we're going to have a fair bit of bullying one way or the other for quite a while on this one. So, anyway, um, that's basically all of our stories for this week. We do have three tips of the week this week. First one is 64 Things Every Geek Should Know. Um, And, of course, you can find all of these uh, tips as well as the stories at globalgeeknews.com. But 64 tips, or 64 things, excuse me, that every geek should know. Basically, everything from knowing technical acronyms, how to reset RAM, surf the Internet anonymously, hide a file in a JPEG, crack a Wi-Fi password, replace a laptop keyboard, strip Windows a DRM, um, uh, screw with wife, the people leeching off your Wi-Fi, all kinds of different stuff, and links to stuff of like little tutorials and stuff on how to, you can learn to do things like hotwire your car, even. So this this is a great compilation of different things that every geek should know, or at least know how to figure out how to do. And this compilation is a great great way of figuring out how to do it. Speaking of which, there's um, I believe there was like the how-to videos. I think it's I don't. I can't remember the name of the company. I think it's like How To. They do a bunch of videos on YouTube. Has done all kinds of videos. I saw some story about them last week that they've done a ton of stuff, like more than anybody on How To videos, so they're certainly worth a check out as well. But anyway, yeah, this is a huge list, great list of anything and everything that's good to know how to do. There's also, for the second tip, how to write a viral blog post. Seven real examples. And just kind of walks you through seven different examples of how some blog posts went viral and what you can do to make yours go viral. Something, if you're looking for a little bit more traffic, might be more interesting to you. And the most, and what I think is probably the most important tip, not anything against the 64 things everything a geek should know but the Windows 7 release candidate shutdowns start in a month this is something that I have I have to deal with myself I know a lot of people are still on the Windows 7 release candidate myself included that basically the shutdowns that happen every two hours or whatever that the people with the beta had to deal with several months ago is now coming to the release candidate starting 
um, uh, the end of February, I believe, or no, 1st of March is going to be the uh, start of the bi-hourly shutdowns, and starting February 15th, it's going to give you daily prompts to remind you about the expiration and stuff like that, just in case of the if you don't have enough notice already. But basically, you're going to need to um, install another operating system, whether it's the retail version of Windows 7 or Windows XP or Vista or whatever. But basically, and as of a month, you won't really want to use Windows 7 because after the whole bi-hourly shutdown things, which is extremely annoying anyway, after that it'll start showing up as a non-genuine copy of Windows or something. Yeah, it says this copy of Windows is not genuine or something to that effect will be displayed in like the lower right corner of the desktop. So... If you have, if you're still running the Windows 7 release candidate like I am on my laptop and my netbook, I would recommend backing up all of your data, which that's very important to back up everything, and then get a get a released version of Windows 7 or whatever put on your machine. So anyway, that is all of our show for this week. We. Um, don't forget, you can find all the show notes at globalgeeknews.com, and I will be posting stuff from my Microsoft trip and a few other things on globalgeeknews.com slash blog this week. And also, um, one thing that I wanted to uh, announce, kind of, essentially, is a, a couple of days ago I put subscription buttons on the different posts for pretty much the podcast. I don't think I went through and necessarily put them on all of the shows. I, I think I did it like the most recent 30 shows or something like that. But basically there's now a button on there where you can subscribe for $5 a month. Just a $5 a month donation to help us out for basically helping to pay like the server costs, equipment costs and stuff. Because I'd like to really upgrade the setup as far as I'd like to get some mixers and stuff so we can start doing a whole lot more with with the show, some better audio equipment so it sounds a lot better. And But first, I want to at least get the hosting and stuff paid off, which I'm still several hundred dollars in the hole from that over the past couple of years. So for those of you that would enjoy the show and have the ability to donate, please subscribe to the $5 a month. There still is the globalgeeknews.com slash donations for anybody that wants to do over $5 a month. That won't be reoccurring. The $5 a month is reoccurring. It's a monthly thing. But the donations page, you can give one-time donations of how much ever you want. Anything over $10, you can put your link on the page. Anything over $25, you'll get a shout-out in the show to whatever site you want. And I'm still working on doing something special for anybody who gives like $100 or more, like a t-shirt or hat or something like that. But that'll be that part will be coming soon. But you can still donate one-time sums there. You can do the five dollar a month subscription. And if you can't afford to um, do it, that's fine. I mean, five dollars a month or whatever. That's a Starbucks. That's um, fair for uh, uh, parking meter or whatever. And if you can't afford it, that's I, that's fine. I know a lot of people are out of jobs, so at least go somewhere on the internet, in person, wherever, and tell people about the show. Say, hey, here's a cool tech podcast, I think you'll like it, and give them the link. Just 
do something to help grow the show, whether it's helping pay for the server bills or just telling people about the show. Just do something to help the show, show that you appreciate us and the work that we do, putting in and doing an hour show, and not to mention all the prep time once a week, every week, provided nothing comes up like divorces and whatnot. But anyway, that would be the show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, anything, feel free to send me PCNerd37 at globalgeeknews.com. You can also shoot me a Twitter or a tweet or whatever at glo which is at Global Geek News. And if you follow me, I do my best to follow you back within 24 or 48 hours, something like that. Or you can also follow me personally. I am at PCNerd37 on Twitter, which there tends to be a lot of overlap between the two tweets, but I do there are some, some things that I do keep separate, so it's probably a good idea to follow both accounts. And don't forget to follow Wesley, who is at Wesley83. He may not be here tonight, but I'm sure he would really appreciate it if you followed him as well and wished him well on his uh, issues that he's having in his life right now. I'm sure I know he is asking for all the prayers and, that he can get. So anything that you can do, just some words of encouragement, I'm sure would be much appreciated. But anyway, that is it. Don't forget to check out everything at globalgeeknews.com, and we will see you guys next week. Later. <laughs>